Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. This episode was inspired by a conversation I had that made me think about what responsibilities do I have as a podcaster, as someone in media? How much information do I need to actually act upon the information? Well, this is what we're going to talk about on this podcast episode. And if you think this is irrelevant from communities and from people, then think again. I'd like to thank Chaya Fishman for introducing me to one of our guests. One question I'd like to post to you before we begin, this is regarding a future episode. One of our fans reached out and encouraged me to have a controversial conversation and use my platform to interview a gut refuser. Now, this is a very complicated territory and I'd like to hear from you on what your opinions are what may be the pros and cons. I know Flatbush Girl is being sued as we speak. This has happened over the last week by a get refuser who ended up giving a get because of the work she has been doing. So I'd love to hear from you. As always, I'd love to thank my incredible referral network, you, my ladies and gentlemen, for referring business to me, to my podcasting business, my business coaching practice, and keeping this podcast going. Without any further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Francisca Show. Today is a very exciting and serious panel. We have Ish on a, an employment attorney, and we have Dini Wasserman, who is an ER doctor currently living in Israel. And we are here to talk about the Me Too movement and to discuss what it is Is it helping women? Is it not helping women? What are the rules to this movement, so to speak? And what do we all need to know to get the most out of this? This is a disclaimer, an attack on anyone, but to bring the conversation forward so we are all better understanding of what the expectations are, how are norms changing, what's okay, what's not, and how do we move forward? with more knowledge. So I'll welcome you both to the show. Please just state your name and tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Jeanette Levy-Frisch. I am an employer's attorney. By that, I mean I work primarily with employers to help them understand not only what their legal obligations are, but actually how to use employment law to then leverage the relationships with their employees, which I maintain are or should be a business's most valuable asset. Thank you, Dini. My name is Dini Wasserman. I am an emergency physician. I also have a subspecialty in EMS and disaster medicine. I've worked both in the U.S. and now in Israel. 
Welcome to the show. And side note for anyone who is related to me and Dini, you probably know that we are second cousins. So we had to get that little piece of information out of the way. Before we start talking about all the difficult conversations that arouse from the Me Too movement, let's bring it back to basics. Jeanette, can you please explain what the Me Too movement is and what are the benefits and perhaps drawbacks to it? The Me Too movement started evolving in October 2017, and it was a response to complaints certainly about high-profile individuals that apparently had sexually harassed a number of women. And we know certainly one of the more infamous examples of that was producer Harvey Weinstein. And Me Too was kind of what it sounded like. And you had uh, one person who kind of coined the hashtag Me Too. And this was where a number of other women came forward to say, yeah, exactly that. Me Too. This happened to Me Too. And many of them had said they didn't say anything. Either they were scared. There were many who, if they wanted to have a career or even just have a job, were afraid that their job or perhaps career would be jeopardized. They were afraid they would not be believed, they would be retaliated against. And so now more women started coming out of the woodwork to basically say, me too, this has happened to me too. And then we started hearing more and more from actresses and not just in Hollywood, but from everywhere, just reporting of sexual harassment appeared to increase. So you're asking about, has it helped? Has it not helped? And I know that that's your main question. I, as I look at it and say, first of all, I would not want us to focus so much on the issue of the Me Too movement itself. Is it helping or not? As opposed to what do we do from here? Dini, as a representative of the workforce, somebody who sees what's happening to women through an ER lens, through the workforce. What can you add here? So I, I think it's interesting because I I remember when the Me Too movement started, like you said, you put a date on it so I can actually imagine where I was. But I was actually a resident when this whole thing came out. And I remember distinctly the hashtag starting. And I remember the effect it had in the medical sphere because it actually did have specific reverberations amongst my colleagues in the medical world, because it's something we deal with a lot. We think it's 2021, there's lots of women in medicine, and that's true, but we still deal with on a day-to-day basis a lot of both macro and micro um, aggressions and ways that people act that may be varying degrees of okay or not okay. And the way people respond to that is different. And I think that the Me Too movement had a lot of implications just for me as just a normal, regular person trying to do my career and how that, what that meant for myself and my colleagues and how we interacted in the professional sphere. This brings us to the next clarification stage. What is acceptable and what isn't acceptable? And how can we tell especially in a world where the rules change or are changing. This is Jeanette. I'm speaking as an American attorney. So say it's, as far as I'm concerned, sexual harassment has always been unacceptable. It has for sure been illegal since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Okay, chapter Title VII is the chapter that deals with employment issues. 
So it's always been illegal or it's been illegal since then. So what's included in sexual harassment? Certainly unwanted touching comments about someone's body or body parts or demeaning or coarse terms. And by the way, I will say this, it's not only men against women, although that does still seem to be the predominant. The U.S. Supreme Court, first of all, ruled in 1986 that sexual harassment is discrimination that's illegal. But same-sex harassment is also illegal under federal laws, under those states that have similar laws, under those states' laws too, what they call quid pro quo. So in other words, asking somebody out and saying, you know, I can help your career or I'll promote you or I won't make your life difficult. I won't write you up. I won't demote you. I won't fire you if you go out with me, if you have sex with me or grant other sexual favors. Those are not that is by no means an exhaustive list. Even making fun of somebody because they do not conform to traditional gender stereotypes. There's actually case law, the U.S. Supreme Court even ruled on that and said that is sexual discrimination and can be harassment. So those are kind of some broad categories that's, again, not meant to be an exhaustive list. So that's what very broadly defined what sexual harassment is and what is not acceptable. And I guess I saw enough things either just for my own practice and in-house where it could go on about examples way more than anybody probably cares to hear that we even have, would have time to hear. So I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, thank you. Dini, would you like to add? Yeah, I'll just throw in there. I, I think that there are things that everyone knows very clearly falls in the sexual harassment category. And I think the difficulty is that there are a lot of things that are not okay, that we're not necessarily taught how to determine if they're not okay. You say unwanted comments, unwanted touching. What's the difference between someone coming up to you and being persistent and being cute and not taking no for an answer and someone being a little too creepy and a little too pushy? And honestly, sometimes the answer is the difference is the person, whether the person wants it or not. And in a way, you know, someone might say, well, that's not fair. There's no clear rules. But on the other hand, that's life (laughs) and life isn't fair and life isn't always clear. And so I think the problem is, is that when we try to teach the issue of sexual harassment as a black and white issue, it becomes very confusing for people because it's not so clear where those lines are always. There are definitely lines and there are definitely things that are not okay. But sometimes both for the person doing it and for the person it being done to, sometimes they feel like they don't know where they are. And I think that's what creates a lot of the confusion and this he said, she said, she said, she said, he said, he said, <laughs> all, all of all of the ways to do it of, of who's right and who's wrong and what was inappropriate and what was not inappropriate. I come from a field where I work in the ER. It's things that fly at my work, comments, and ways people act amongst each other, amongst our colleagues, would never fly in a different type of workplace. And it just has to do with the work culture and the people you work with. And you have to be with people. And there's a certain social um, intelligence that you have to have in order to pick up on those cues. And so no one's saying it's easy. Um, it's very difficult because it would be simple if there was a list and you'd say, this is okay, and this is not okay. But there isn't a list because people are humans 
And that whole concept of what constitutes harassment has a lot to do with the intention and also the feeling, the intention of the person doing it, but also the feeling of the person receiving it. Can I jump in, Jeanette? Yes, I agree with pretty much all what you say, that it's very difficult to define it and, and to kind of say, okay, here are the bullet points. But you did mention one thing that I think is certainly very important, which is that if the person on the receiving end says, hey, I'm uncomfortable with that, please stop. That's certainly an indicator. The problem is that very often the person on the receiving end is hesitant to say they're not comfortable. Right. And, you know, you did bring up something about work culture. Now, that's unfortunately, that can be a very problematic issue mm-hmm. because there are a lot of things that are kind of passed off as work culture that really, that shouldn't be work culture. That's not okay. The top management in that particular workplace probably needs to revisit their work culture. If I can give one really quick example of one situation when I was in-house counsel of the company and a salesperson, it was a woman in a sales department, there were a few men there, and she was subjected to comments by a top-performing male salesperson. He was making a lot of comments about her anatomical parts. And she didn't even report it. A coworker reported it to, to HR. And they called me in to kind of walk them through the investigation. And I remember speaking with her. And she was hesitant, even when I was asking her, look, we need to talk to you about what happened. She was very hesitant to even say anything because she, quote, didn't want to make trouble. And I had to say to her, listen, I need to leave you with two thoughts. Number one, you are not causing trouble. If this person did what he's reported to have done, this is the person who caused the trouble, number one. Number two, if this is going on, if we need to be able to address it and we can't address it if nobody's coming forward to say anything. And then what generally happens is the behavior tends to escalate. And then we have a bigger problem on our hands. You said a lot and you said a lot, Deanie, that I think was very on target. And I know I just at least wanted to address those two points because I know that, Francisco, you probably have other questions you want to ask and you only have so much time. I'd like to address something where there's intention or a place to receive it. So let's just talk about culture, corporate culture in certain companies. It's especially with the Me Too movement on the horizon or even before it, it's just more convenient to keep it same sex. So if you're promoting men, it would just be easier. I know in a lot of firm companies, this happens, for example, it's just mostly men because they can go on a trip somewhere to, I know you're shaking your head, no, but this kind of behavior where there, anything you say can be taken the wrong way, or it's inappropriate to have a certain corporate event for mixed sexes. So it's easier to just promote or have separate you're shaking your heads like what i'm talking about is completely legal but you have women who start companies or i'm in the coaching space and they're women who only work with women and they only want to hire women because it's just a safer space it's a safer environment and you get to create your own rules as entrepreneurs is this helping employment opportunities careers Or has the Me Too movement sort of put an end to a certain potential? This is genetic. First of all, to then say, okay, we're just not going to hire any women because we don't want to get into this. In the United States, under federal and state laws, 
That's illegal. Harassment's a form of discrimination. This is another form of discrimination. That's number one. Number two, it's blaming the target of the harassment and it's not holding the perpetrators accountable. And number three, to blame, it's not the Me Too movement's fault that this is happening. So it's, to me, it's an inappropriate response. It is possible to behave appropriately. And I think the assumption there is that, oh, we're having this problem And the assumption is that we can't and we don't have to hold the perpetrators accountable. And again, it's not just men toward women. Same-sex harassment happens very frequently as well. I'm not talking about not hiring women, perhaps keeping them in the receptionist positions. That's discrimination. That's illegal. That defeats the purpose of the anti-discrimination laws. The anti-discrimination laws were passed so that women and others in protected categories would not be effectively subordinated and subject and subjugated. So to say that, okay, ladies, which some people feel, by the way, is a sexist term, but okay, ladies, (sighs) here are your choices. Do you want to, do you want to make it in your career? Do you want to have equal opportunities or do you want to be safe from harassment? No, that's what kind of choice is that? We women or any, nobody in any group should have to ha- make those choices. This is Dini. I'd like to speak a little bit to Francesca, what I think you were hinting to, which is this whole idea of the concept of creating a women's only event or a women's only space where women's company seems very progressive to people. It seems very excellent. But on the flip side of it is, it's also not that there's not space for other people, but technically that is excluding a group of people. And I think that some women's only events are great. I think there are places where marginalized people have not had space to be and therefore they've had to create their own spaces. And that is a good thing. But on the other hand, I think it kind of leans into the problem in the sense that we're going to say, okay, if you're going to behave badly, we're going to make our own spaces. But for both sides, it's lazy because like you said, harassment is still an issue. And it needs to be addressed. So on the one hand, everyone says, well, if this is going to be the problem, why don't we just not hire women in this sector? Or why don't we just make a men's only and a women's only event so we don't have to deal with those issues? But I think it's perpetuating the problem because we're not teaching people how to think and how to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. And so, yes, I think there is a time and a place for these safe spaces for people And perhaps it's to educate them on these issues where they feel like they have a safe space with people who are similar to them and they feel like they can ask those questions and they feel like they can have that frank discussion without being worried that someone's going to take offense. But on the other hand, I think to just completely separate it and say, well, if this is going to be a problem, we'll just make separate things. I think that's lazy and it perpetuates the culture of people who, who just don't know how to grow and how to learn what's okay and what's not okay. Let's move on a little bit. And this gets a little tricky because we're getting into the space of she asked for it or we're blaming the woman where the woman uses her womanhood as an advantage to progressing or getting promoted. So let's talk about the women this worked for. Let's say they married their boss. Now they're 20 years in, they're retired because they're so wealthy or whatever, hypothetically. But when they were starting out, they used their pretty privilege to advance their career, potentially. And it worked for them. So they're not upset about it. How does that play in? 
And this is a little bit connected to women who potentially give consent to comments or a date or a relationship. But then when that doesn't pan out, the consent is reversed retroactively and how that works. Because we can't have women using this and benefiting from it. And then when it's not convenient, suing the other party or me tooing them and canceling them out. This is Dini. The phrase that comes to my mind that I'm not going to use <laughs> because it's not very appropriate, but you don't go to the bathroom where you eat. And that's a rule. And it's inconvenient. I know a lot of people who like, for example, I was in residency. You work 80 to 120 hours a week. The only people you see are your co-residents. So this is literally your life. And there were a lot of people who were in relationships or other things. And often it ended badly because there was no separation of life and work. And if it ends well, it's great. We had a few, I, I can think of two couples who were attendings in my residency who were residents together. And they dated while they were in residency and then they got married and now they work together. And it's great because it worked out. But I can also think of off the top of my head, a lot of people who dated people in the workplace and then it didn't work out. And then it's awkward because you still have to work with this people. Now, is it fair that you shouldn't be allowed to because maybe it won't work out? No. And it's great for the people it does work out. There's like nothing more fun than being able to like see your person at work also. But that's a fact of life and it's a risk you have to take. So for the women it worked out for, great and do I think it should be allowed? Maybe, but there are a lot of places, like we said, that they don't want it to be messy. So they say, okay, this isn't allowed. You're not allowed to date your coworkers. And then it creates all these other host of problems. So I think that it's complicated and people are people. And whenever we try to make rules around something that is not very clear, and again, I want to say that things that are wrong are wrong, but it's not very clear to everyone what is wrong. And that has a lot to do with culture and education and how they grew up and, and what's considered okay and how close you are with the person and a lot of things. You, you talked about culture, Jeanette, and how work culture needs to be different. But working in an office is very different than working in an ER. It just is. The, the stuff that happens and what the things you see. And because of that, the culture is different. And I want to be allowed to be close with my coworkers. And these are the people who are literally my closest friends because I spend more time with them than any other people ever. <laughs> and it makes it complicated. I think the most important thing is being allowed to ask and being allowed to communicate without being worried that someone's going to jump down your throat because I think a lot of the issue is that people who are curious and do want to know more and do want to know if their thinking is right or wrong or why someone would think what they assume is okay is not okay, I think they immediately get kind of shut down. How could you think that that's a terrible thing? And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by not allowing them to have those conversations in safe spaces where we can say, okay, what you're saying is not okay, but I'm going to explain to you why without assuming you're a horrible person. This is Jeanette, and you made some great points. With respect to, first of all, I'm going to say, Francisca, the assumption that this that is, number one, by no means the majority of cases. You don't have a whole, you know, droves of women that are just signing up to go and date people at work and then take advantage. It happens. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. It's not the majority. But yes, occasionally that does happen. There are ways to deal with it. Yes, you could say some companies will say 
we don't want you dating coworkers. Some will say, if you're going to date coworkers, we don't want it to be where one reports to the other. And so one solution might be, all right, if you're going to date, we have to move one of you. That's one possibility. I've seen some companies that will also say, all right, if, if we've got two people, they're dating occasionally, especially if one reports to the other, having both parties sign a document that actually says this is a consensual relationship. A woman who later says, let's say the relationship goes sour. And now you're also talking about traditional male and female or female and male, whatever. The question also is when the complaint happens, is there evidence that backs it up? Just because I say that somebody is a pink elephant with purple polka dots doesn't mean they are. I've got to come up with, I have to have some evidence that tends to substantiate that. And I have certainly seen investigations of complaints where there's not enough to substantiate it. It's inconclusive. Um, But to get back to, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but this is so important. We are focused on, yes, the male versus the female. But again, I've seen female on male. I, I did have a situation once where a female manager was harassing younger men that reported to her. And I've also seen female on female, male on male. So we're still seeing that. And I think we're hearing more reports of that as well. I do think that whatever the work culture is, I think it is possible to at least strive for a respectful workplace. What Dini has talked about are situations where, okay, it's not clear. We don't know what's okay, what's not. I will tell you that I hear of a lot, I see it here of a lot of situations where the truth is most of us would look at it and say, how do they not know this is wrong? And it's a question of what they, most of them do know what's, that it's wrong and they may not care. There may be a sense of entitlement for whatever reason or a feeling that there's just, they're not going to, I'm not going to get trouble. I make the company a lot of money. I'm high up in the company or not even that, or just because of however they were raised with a sense of entitlement. But it's very often it is behavior that most of us would look at and say, oh, my gosh, that's so clearly wrong. How do they not know? So just just another twist in there to kind of throw in. Okay, so I'd like to transition out of corporate culture more into actual life that's not necessarily work. It can be entrepreneurship where you are pitching to investors and you have your own company. It can be, unfortunately, a religious community situation where you have either teachers or principals or rabbis or the women equivalent, but somebody in a position of more power taking advantage of people of less power, so to speak. Let's talk about what is evidence or circumstantial evidence. What kind of information, first of all, is it safe enough? Who do you go to? And what kind of information do you need to bring forward for anything to happen? I know so many people either feel empowered to go and speak up and the people accused are being upset about being accused wrongfully. If we can lay down the basic information, a woman would need to feel safe enough to come forward. What information is enough to, quote unquote, accuse someone for them to be convicted and for them to be canceled out? Whose responsibility is it to prove guilt or innocence? Let's talk about that. This is Dini. I think it depends what your goal is. And I don't mean goal like, what do you want? But if someone wants to bring a legal case, there are very specific things that you need in order to make a case. And I don't pretend to be an expert in that because I am not a lawyer. 
But th- there's different reasons that people talk about things that happen to them. If someone just wants to be heard and believed and taken seriously and helped personally, you don't need anything. You just need a person who will believe you. And that has to do more with your personal relationships with other people and having a safe place to talk about things. And that can be literally just you talking to, disclosing to one other person, this is a thing that happened with, you can tell them the person, you cannot tell them the person. And all you need is to feel safe enough that the person you're disclosing to believes you. And in those cases, you don't need any proof. It doesn't matter because you're not trying to convict someone. You're not trying to, you're not trying to do anything. You're just trying to get your own help. Um, now there's that, which is like the very, very, like one end all the way to the other end, which is where you want to bring a a lawsuit against someone and you want to accuse someone of something, possibly even criminally, and get them convicted. And what you need for that is totally different. And then somewhere in the middle is this whole concept of cancel culture and how do we not necessarily bring a lawsuit against someone, but affect their lives in a way so that they get to, they don't get to have all of the advantages and respect and all the things that they've always had because they did something badly. And I think that middle part is what do you need to do that? I think, again, that depends. And it also has a lot to do with us as the third party people just existing in the world and consuming this information of what we consider, quote unquote, good enough and how we react to it. I think the first disclaimer is if someone says that something bad happened to them, like a woman, a man, someone says that they were hurt in some way, abused, harassed, especially sexual harassment, people don't lie about it. It's, the data shows that people don't lie. Yes, there are things that maybe in a court of law come out, or yes, there are, there are crazy cases where <laughs> things came out that someone said something that wasn't true. But in a general, as a general rule, the people who are saying something, it costs them something to speak up also. And so if they're saying something, they're saying it for a reason. And again, every story has two sides, but a lot of stories have one side that's more right and one side that's more wrong. Now, what we do with that information as the general public, as a journalist, as someone who works with the other person, each one of those has a different responsibility, I think. So this is Jeanette. I want to go back to probably the first thing that you said, which you may not realize is, is, is huge. I think for most people who are complaining really almost about any wrong, in, in, particularly in a civil case, I think, very often it's about being heard. And I actually maintain that most lawsuits or many are preventable. There are many junctures along the way where something else could have been done to head off the lawsuit. Now, you could have somebody who's a very litigious person and who just thinks they want what they want and they want their day in court. I don't feel that's the majority. I think in most cases, again, there's something else that could be done beforehand to head off something getting to that point. You're talking about not necessarily specifically in the workplace. And again, is there going to be a specific list of things? Obviously, again, if somebody is saying things that are certainly demeaning toward any one group, whether it's because someone is female, because someone is is Black or African-American or, or Asian or whatever, 
or if you can see very clearly that one person is treated differently than someone in another group. But yeah, sometimes it's more subtle than that. But if somebody, let's say I'm doing a presentation in front of some, whatever, a customer or whatever, and let's say it isn't my company though. So I'm still an employee. And so if you get into that, okay, sometimes there are actually, we get into uh, many of these laws require an employer to protect an employee from harassment, even by a client, a vendor, a contractor. It still begs the question, is it harassment though? And yeah, sometimes the lines get blurred. And that's also why when there are allegations, why you need to do an investigation and you need to do a thorough one. And sometimes very often that investigation is going to get substantiated the the investigation could substantiate the allegations and there are times where it won't and where it will be inconclusive but i think what dini also said is also very valid okay the question is we have this information what are we looking to do with it and that's a huge factor yeah that's a big question we have to ask ourselves what is it that we want and i would say for most of us we probably want we want equal opportunity and we want to be treated with respect So then we get to the question of, okay, but still, okay, that's what we want. What do we want to do? What are we able to do? And what are we willing to do to get to that point? And that's going to very much depend on specific circumstances. So to kind of give a global answer, I think that's why maybe Pupti and I kind of hesitated a little, you know, answer because how do you give a global answer to that? You can't. And and there isn't going to be a bright line rule. So we're still going to have to do a case by case um, assessment of what's the situation and what are our options and what do we think it's it makes the most sense to do. Thank you for addressing this because it is such a massive topic. And the reason I decided to go into this is because I, as somebody in media, have had to deal with having some information, but not enough information. And I want to know what is my responsibility as somebody in media? I am not a journalist. I am not a persecutor. I am not a defense attorney. (laughs) As, As somebody who gives people a voice, especially with our No More Silent segment, we've had survivors of abuse come and share their stories and I, I had a disclaimer how I did not check or look into the stories and names were not named unless they were criminally convicted. We tried to give a lot of privacy, but again, the point, the goal was to give a voice and to help the survivors feel heard and understood and believed. Now, as somebody in media who has a platform, how much responsibility do I have to believe someone, and I do believe, but I have no information. How do I go forward with that? This is Dini. I think I can speak more on the side of a private citizen, which I think you as someone in media aren't completely a private citizen, but you're not at the level of a journalist or a lawyer in terms of what kinds of facts you need in order to go forward with something. And I think that Like I said, to believe someone, you just need to believe them. And I think it's your prerogative to believe someone, whether or not they have facts or facts that they can prove to you. I think that you, when you're talking with another human being, you can choose whether or not to believe their story. And I think it's important to believe people's stories 
because regardless of whether or not, if you had experienced the same story, you would tell it the same way. That is how that person experienced it for whatever reason. And therefore it is their story. However, when it comes to then doing something with that information, on the flip side, I don't think that someone who is a private citizen and is not under responsibility as far as fact-checking and making things happen is under the responsibility to then make a decision or a judgment on either side. If this is somebody that you want to believe and you want to support them, that's one thing. But if this is also a story that is, for whatever reason, difficult for you and you don't want to do anything with it, that's your prerogative as a private person to not do anything with that story. Again, it's not to say I don't believe you or you're lying, but it's also, I see this, I'll, I'll take the example of just art because I see this a lot. Actor in a movie, actor comes out that they did something bad and then everyone says, how could you watch this actor's movie? You're supporting a horrible person. And Exactly. And the point is, my point is, there's a lot of other people who are involved in making this piece of art. And it's that classic argument that you used to have with your English lit teacher when they would say, well, what did the author mean by this poem? And you would say, well, I don't care what the author meant by this poem. I know what I mean when I read this poem. And they would say, well, you have to say what the author meant. But then there's the whole thought process that once the art is produced and it's out in the world, it belongs to the consumer. It doesn't necessarily belong to the creator anymore. And I, as a consumer of that art, should be allowed to take it and enjoy it and and benefit from it. And uh, I think that people should be allowed to navigate that, how they feel is good for them. And I think, again, I'm not talking about someone who is a journalist and reporting facts or is a lawyer and prosecuting cases. I'm talking about just a regular old private person who wants to be able to enjoy a book that they always loved, even though the author came out and said some terrible things. And you should be allowed to choose to do that or not do that without being told that you're bad or how could you or you're not supporting the Me Too movement. Thank you for bringing up cancel culture and the entertainment space, which I'm very involved in. Jeanette, would you like to Mm. add? Yeah. (laughs) A side comment on the art and what did the author mean? That I have to admit that question always, I always find that question a little bit annoying. It's like, I'm not inside this author's head. I don't know what the author meant. Just that aside, something that I do want to throw in there, a little legal point that may open up a little can of worms, unfortunately. So Francisca, technically you're not a journalist. However, you use media. And to the extent that certain statements, whether you make them or somebody you're interviewing them is making it, that's known legally as publication. If there are any statements that are made or that one could allege remain in reckless disregard of the truth, that could support a claim for defamation. That is, by the way, a very hard claim to prove, but it can happen. So it's just something I'm putting there, just an awareness there for you. So even though you're not technically a journalist, that theoretically could be an issue for you. Now, you mentioned that you issue disclaimers, which certainly help. Okay. You know, I'm just I'm interviewing this person. These views are not necessarily my views. I have not checked it. This is just this person's rendition of the facts. This is this person's view of what's going on. And so that would probably protect you in that respect. From the issue, from the viewpoint of cancel culture, I think it's a very, you know, that that's certainly a decision who you do and don't want to support. And then who, what your viewers or your listeners can then decide whether they want to keep listening to you or keep viewing, you know, any of your videos or podcasts or whatever. 
there are a number of folks in the media, in Hollywood or wherever or whatever equivalent that would say, you know what, we would alienate too many of our viewers if we don't cancel this person using air quotes. And that's a decision they have to make. And you know what, they're going to get criticized. No matter what they do, they're going to get criticism. So it's for them to decide which criticism they can more easily live with. Yeah. Afford or live with. Yes. So that's, I suppose, less a legal issue. And we've gotten, I've seen it probably over a longer number of years than you have, where we've gotten more into this whole increasingly what's politically correct and what isn't. Things that I know could be said when I started in the workforce that you can't get away with now. And it's not, they're not things that are necessarily sexual harassment or things that you see on TV shows now that would never fly Mm -hmm. or that you saw previously, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that would never fly. We didn't see as offensive. And there might be people who still would not see as offensive and nothing as outrageous as the things we've even talked about or alluded to. Where is it going to go? What do we do? Again, so much of it's going to have to be as it comes to us. We're going to have to look at it on a case by case basis and figure out, you know, based on specific facts and who's involved and Again, what and as I think Dini said, okay, what do we want to do with this information now? What's our goal? I'll take this moment to wrap up this episode and I'll give you both a chance to say some parting thoughts. But I think that's a very important question. What is our goal? When somebody is reaching out to a lawyer or a therapist or a journalist or a rabbi and they want to be believed and they want to share something, maybe they want to cancel someone out. And they, as Dini mentioned, there is a cost to doing that. And at the same time, there's responsibility on other parties who are involved by default It's very important to acknowledge or try to have a conversation and decide what is the goal? Do we want to create a safer space? Do we want to take someone down? Do we need to protect other people? And in the case of children or anyone else who can be taken advantage of, that needs to happen. Unfortunately, there are a lot of cases as well where it's a matter of convenience or it's somebody's already being taken down, so something that may have happened, but it wasn't so significant, but it would feel nice to just say me too, even if nothing happened to that particular person, but maybe some other things happened. I just feel like this is so unresolved. Mm. I don't feel any calmer than I did when we started this conversation. (laughs) I feel like it's so complicated. It's so hard to prove anything. And does anything actually happen? Does anyone benefit from this? And and at the end of the day, will there be a better future for corporate culture, for communal culture? This is Dini. I'll say this. I am not speaking from any place of wisdom or anything else. I think that it is always good to create a culture and an environment where people feel safe sharing the things that have hurt them and that are affecting them. And I think that is a good thing. On the other hand, I also think it is really important that people shouldn't feel pressured or bullied into doing something or reacting a certain way just because it's the socially appropriate way to react. And I think both of those things are true. And I'm, I can actually tell you a personal story. I, I had a, incident when I was a resident with an attending physician. 
where there was inappropriate sexual nothing, you know, just it was so nothing that I almost didn't even think about it. And it was, you know, just an inappropriate comment. And I remember I, it was a it was a person that I didn't have to really interact with that much. And so it was almost it was not worth it for me to say anything because when I said something, it turned into this whole thing. They wanted me to come and they wanted me to give a statement and they wanted me to talk to this one and they wanted me to talk to that one. And then I had to write it down and then I had to do this. And it literally got to the point where I was like, this is not worth my time. And the only reason I had said anything is because there were multiple other people who had happened to as well. And they were people who were going to have to deal with this person on a more regular basis. It was not someone in my department, was not someone who was like anywhere close related to my circle, but it became almost like not worth it for me. And so I think that creating a culture where it is worth it (laughs) is important. But on the other hand, I think that creating a culture where if someone tells a story and you say, well, I was there and this happened to me and I didn't feel uh, uncomfortable by it. And then because of that, you get attacked. I don't think that's good either for anybody, women, men, anybody else. And again, like I said, I think it creates that environment where instead of people leaning into the problem and wanting to be educated and wanting to be better at it, they say, well, why even deal with this? They get lazy and then they just separate everything because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with your accusations. We don't want to deal with somebody misunderstanding something. So we're just not going to go into it. And so I think that as far as you're circling back to your first question of does, has the Me Too movement helped or hurt? I think like anything else, it's done a little bit of both. And I think that we have to be careful in the way we use our influence and the way we use our social influence and the way we use our words and the way we use our social norms of what's acceptable and what's not in order to convince people to be grow and be better and not fall back into things that are comfortable and easy. Wow. This is Jeanette. <laughs> I would say just circle back to your first question. Does the Me Too movement hurt or help? There certain ways I'm sure a lot of women would say it's been helpful for them, kind of giving them maybe the courage to come forward to first of all name their situation as, hey, this was harassment, this was perhaps abusive, this was whatever. So in that respect, I'd say helpful. But you also said, okay, but where do we go from here? And I think that really, I don't know if any of us really thought that we were going to solve the problem today, but I would say that the answer should be, we have to be willing to continue. Doesn't necessarily have to be the three of us, but whatever. The conversation has to continue uh, because it's not something that can be wrapped up in a 45-minute conversation or even a day-long conversation or whatever. The problem as it stands right now, it didn't get this way overnight. So we're not going to resolve it overnight either. And I, I think, though, to say that because certain things have resulted from the Me Too movement that we don't like, that the Me Too movement itself hasn't helped. I think it's like anything. You have certain things that are tools, and it, it's all a question of how you use that tool. And when you use the tool in a way that's constructive, then it's a good thing. And if it gets misused and people start to distort what's coming out of it, then you'll see some results that aren't good. Is that the fault of the tool, in this case, the Me Too movement? I would say no. But I think the key, I I, I would say what I 
come away with is I think, no, we can't just say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sweep it under the rug or we're just going to separate everybody or we're just going to keep burying our heads in the sand and pretend that the Me Too movement never happened. None of those things are going to work. The Me Too movement did happen. It did create some changes. We still have this issue. And again, I would say that the objective should be not just for women, for all groups of people. It should be about an inclusive and a respectful environment where certainly in the workplace, where there should be equal opportunity for for people who are qualified for those opportunities. And that's okay. Those are very highfalutin, broad statements, but to me, those should be among the driving values. I would say I, I often hear the assumption from you know from businesses, oh, we don't have any of these problems because we're from Jews. Like, you sure about that? You know, maybe you don't want to be so sure about that because that's not necessarily the case. And I think sometimes there are just assumptions that we're raised with. We go through life with and we don't even realize that there could be some implicit bias. I'm not even just talking about sexual harassment. You know, I will tell you one time I was applying for a job as general counsel with a nonprofit organization. It was a from nonprofit organization. And I saw immediately why they needed a general counsel because the ad talked about what they were looking for with their general counsel. He will have this amount of experience. He will have this. He will be this sort of person. He will have these attributes. Some she was there right off the bat. And, you know, got asked by the executive director in the interview, he thinks he's making conversation with me. Do I have any children? And he realized, like I had to say to him, you know, I'd be remiss given what your interview, the position you're interviewing me for. If I were to tell you, you really shouldn't ask that on a job interview. He was flabbergasted. So it just, just things that you don't think about. But that, again, as you said, conversation for another time, just, just that little brief aside there. Thank you so much, Jeanette and Dini, for joining me today. I would like to thank you, our listeners, for listening. And if there is a story that you feel like you have started, but you haven't felt safe enough to share a story or information to actually get more understanding and belief, I urge you to take that next step if that's what you need and to share. And my platform is here for you. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us once again on The Francisca Show. Feel free to keep reaching out, sending me messages. My WhatsApp information, my Instagram information are all in the show notes. I love hearing from you. And check in for next week. We have some other exciting episodes as well as some bonus episodes that we will be trying out here on this podcast. Make sure to check out the other jewishcoffeehouse.com podcast as well as the backlog of this podcast. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. See you next time.